Hi everyone, my name is Dean and you're listening to the MLOps podcast. As you probably know, machine learning in general and, and data science are two fields that are evolving all the time and it's really hard to keep up to date. Specifically, the area of bringing machine learning into production or into the real world seems like it's very confusing. There's a lot going on and it's hard to make sense of all that's happening around you. Um, but on the other hand, there are a lot of smart people that are doing great work in bringing their own projects into production. And we've had a chance to speak with a lot of these people, but it definitely seems like the information is not widespread enough and a lot of people don't know of best practices and how other teams work. So that's why we decided to start this podcast where we'll be speaking with people who are working in various types of machine learning teams and hearing about how they are bringing their projects into production. I hope you find this interesting and let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome to the MLOps podcast. I'm Dean, your host, and today I have Ron Romano with me. Ron is a VP engineering at an exciting MLOps startup called Quack AI. Before that, he led the data and machine learning engineering team at Wix, where he built a really impressive end-to-end -end machine learning platform. He also has a master's degree in computer science. Hi, Ron. Really, uh, thank you for taking the time. Sure, no problem. Um, so, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, let's maybe start by uh, uh, giving us a bit of background on how you got into the world of machine learning and machine learning engineering specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, so my background is in data engineering, and that was um, kind of my my profession at Wix. This is what I um, I started with, and in my first degree, um, I started getting into more and more into machine learning. Took some uh, took some courses. So Andrew Ng's course, uh, Stanford, Stanford Andrew Ng, and I really liked it. Uh, but didn't really want to be a data scientist. Okay, I really liked kind of of both worlds, both the engineering and the data science. So when I came into Wix and I had the option to do um, things in between, to be kind of the engineering uh, front end of, of the data science group, that felt like a really good match. Interesting. So where do you see uh, sort of the border? Because there's obviously a lot of talk about titles today. Like you have the data scientist, you have data engineer, now you have machine learning engineer. Um, wh where, where do you see the line between these and where did you put yourself in when you, when you had the choice? So that's, that's a really great question. Um, when we started off at Wix with the entire machine learning platform, machine learning infrastructure, basically there was no really title uh, called machine learning engineering. So what, what I called myself or, or the team that I built was actually machine learning infrastructure. Um, same for data infrastructure, actually. Like the title was software, infra software engineer slash data infrastructure, software engineer slash ML infrastructure, because this is what we did. We didn't really build, uh, we didn't really build the models themselves. We didn't really build um, kind of the systems around the models. We built an ML platform. We built a system, we built you know, a product that is designed to, for data scientists uh, to bring their models to production better. So in my eyes, I, I called it machine learning infrastructure. Uh, these days you have kind of the border between data scientists and machine learning engineers, right? People that only build models and people that need to put them into production and kind of the, the, the handoff. So I, I didn't really see it that way. Do, do you think that there's a clear trend there? Like in the future, will most data scientists become machine learning engineers as well? Or do you think that it's going to be more and more separated? 
Um, I think the trend right now is that it's becoming more and more separated. I see okay. we are seeing actually uh, more and more companies hiring machine learning engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, will the trend stay? Uh, that, that's a good question because it, it might be the case that, let's say, uh, like software engineers and DevOps, that software engineers are the ones that bringing software into production, and it's not like they're handing off their, um, their code to DevOps engineers. DevOps engineers are working on the infrastructure. So maybe it will go to that direction. This is kind of what I, I personally believe in, but again, not based on you know, some actual data. Becoming that there will be people that will build more and more of the infrastructure with better tooling. I hope so. And the data scientists that will be responsible, that I think will be responsible for also deploying the models to production. That separation between data scientists that only needs to build models and machine learning engineers that only need to put those models in production. Um, I don't know. Mixed yeah, feelings. yeah, no, no, I understand. I, I think that's a, it's a good distinction because a lot of times it's sort of, uh, it feels like the discussion becomes uh, shallower, saying either uh, data scientists should do everything and be superhuman or they only need to do like research and everyone else will take around them, like take care of the, the dirty work. Um, and it actually makes sense. Like DevOps don't do the hard work of bringing uh, uh, software into production. They build the infrastructure that lets the, the yeah. software developers do it. So yeah. possibly, yeah, data scientists. So possibly it's not a contradiction. Like data scientists will look more like what we imagine uh, ML engineers are uh, doing today, but also you'll have some ML ops or again, like ML infrastructure uh, um, building the tooling for them. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that makes exactly. sense. To, yeah. This, this is kind of the trend that I, uh, that I specifically believe in. Again, it, it really depends on the tooling with better tooling, with better methodologies. Um, I think it, it's, it might be the case. It's really hard, I think, to scale a mail in the organization that way, that you have a data scientist that needs to hand off his, his project to an ML engineer that needs to put it in production, build an API and do monitoring. We're already seeing in a lot of companies, you know, like, like I did in Wix, uh, people building automations around that, okay? Because as being a machine learning engineer that needs to take code that he didn't write, models that he didn't write and put them into the production, something a bit tedious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the trend will be automation, automation and, and ML infrastructure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think it's also like a good mental model for people that are listening and are trying to sort of imagine what data or ML organization they need to build within their company. Like you, you need to have people that are making the process itself smoother, but you can't shift all of the work of doing the process uh, to those people. Um, so... So yeah, so if you're building your data teams, maybe the takeaway here is you want to hire not just either data scientists or ML engineers, but you want someone who's actually in charge of building proper infrastructure and fine tuning and optimizing those processes. So that's awesome. Um, Is there a specific part in this entire process uh, of sort of taking machine learning uh, models into production that you're especially excited about or that you were especially excited about and led you to, to your current position maybe? Yeah, um, so I think I think two parts I really, I really, I'm really fond of. One is how do we model, uh, or how do we model? Yeah, basically a CI/CD system for uh, for ML. This is kind of what we what I, I really started off at Wix. Okay, we had a really big problem of of this handoff. We had a group of thirty data scientists, twenty five already, 
don't remember the, the exact number, and that needed to bring more and more models into, into production. Okay, and we only and we only had a small group of you know let's call it machine learning engineers. Okay, they were software engineers, but today people they are called machine learning engineers. Um, so that hand of procedure, being a data scientist that was dependent on the software engineering part, um, was a real was a real issue for us. Okay, so we wanted to automate this process. Okay, it's simple again, just like we do for software engineering. So the question is, how do we model the, the same structure, the same methodologies, okay, but including uh, a male special parts, you know, integrating with data sources um, and everything else. So how do we model this process, the CI-CD process, to make them as independent as possible, to make the data scientists as independent as possible, to bring that they will actually hit the button, hit the deploy button, and they will put an, uh, you know, a live endpoint into, into production. So this is something that we uh, that they really worked hard on for the, I don't know, the first year or something like that while building the, uh, the ML platform, the entire CI-CD. Um, and it, it, just, it wasn't just, let's say the tools, it was also the mindset, okay? Because these people were not, most of them actually, were not software engineers, um, were not software engineers, they were more statistics background, physics, and um, now you come to them, listen, everything needs to be version, everything needs to, you know, you need to understand what's in production. So it's, it's a mind, it's a shift. Okay, no more Jupyter notebooks or no more Jupyter notebooks in production. <laughs> Half of the audience now has fire in their eyes. Um, <laughs> my, so, my opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree. And, and I think like we, this is a recurring theme in, in this podcast. And I think, I mean, it's meaningful. I think that, um, Nowadays, there's definitely a clear shift. Like when we started out Dagzav like two years ago, um, J Jupyter notebooks in production were a real sort of contentious uh, topic. And now I think it's pretty clear that most organizations are understanding that it's a great tool for some things, but bringing models into production is not one of those things. Um, I, actually, but I actually tried that. I actually tried building kind of the, the CI system based on, uh, based on um, the paper mail. Like there's a famous series of, of blogs that Netflix wrote about productionizing Jupyter notebooks. So I really like that. I really like the, the ecosystem. I really tried to do that, but it didn't work out very well. It wasn't really something that, uh, you know, that, that held in production, production scale. Was there like a specific reason? Like if, if I'm now a company that is trying to bring notebooks into production, what should I notice that will tell me that this is a bad idea? Um, I think... Paper mill as, as a tool was great, but I think the viewer uh, wasn't that ready and, and it felt like the entire process were, was really immature. And this is what I remember trying it out. Interesting. Um, so yeah, you, you have a lot of hands on I, I don't experience. remember, yeah, I don't remember the specific, but it was something like a project that I personally believed in like productionizing notebooks. This is how we're going to model the CI system. Every model build, every model CI procedure will, will end in a notebook with nice visualization, but it didn't really, um, it wasn't really valuable. Like the flexibility of a Jupyter notebook when integrating with, I don't know, other production system was something that really, really bugged us. Interesting. So, so you, you mentioned the word CICD, and this is actually just something that comes up to my mind because there was a discussion about this uh, a week ago. Some people are uh, saying that CICD is um, 
sort of not an not necessarily let's say an appropriate mental model for for machine learning um I, I i feel like you probably are more qualified than many people to talk about that so so what was the conclusion like how how did you manage to build a cicd system which is focused on machine learning so let's say cicd is a very broad term okay so let's say ci what, what I imagine this important for CI is, is model versioning, is data versioning. This is what we, we really wanted to build. We wanted to get to a place where we, we can reproduce every model that is now running in production. So we versioned the models, we versioned the data pipelines. Uh, this is kind of the, the most important things um, in the CI uh, that, that, that we thought of as the CI procedure for, uh, for machine learning. Okay, build for, for ML, I mentioned it as something that runs tests on your, on your model, tests that the data scientist provided, that trains your model. And this is kind of maybe, um, you know, not, not uh, mandatory or not standard to train the model as part of the CI process. This is something uh, that I personally believe in, but again, I understand the, I understand the cons. Um, serializing the model and pushing it to some repository. So what's very different about, you know, what's, what's wrong about this procedure for, uh, for ML? I didn't see any, any trouble doing that. Okay, thus you have one, let's say one command, build command that takes your model, takes your model from Git, takes your model from the local directory, uh, builds it, trains it, versions it, does all the serialization and pushes kind of the, the Docker, we use Docker, pushes, uh, uh, not the pickle, but really, you know, something that is deployable. So this is a CI system, full-blown CI system for uh, for ML. Nice. So I am biased, but I I agree with everything that you said, especially like the focus on like coming to the CI uh, mental model from the point that uh, models and and experiments should be reproducible, and then that they could be automatically built, and then that they could be automatically pushed to production. That makes sense, and and I I agree that like most. Most of, I think most of the opposition to CI/CD for ML is just a terminology issue. Like, definitely there yeah. are going to be differences from software, but there are differences from software in every like other. I don't know. Um, like, software is also a broad term. There are a lot of different types of development, and you have different types of CI. So it makes sense that you'll automate that at some at some point as well. Yeah, I agree. I think the the important part is automation. Again, automation specifically, we wanted also reproducibility. But for all the models that, that we have, we also had automatic, uh, let's say, training and deployment pipelines because we didn't really want to, to build and deploy, uh, build and deploy those models manually each and every time for every model that we built. And not for every model, but for a lot of the models that we built, we also had, let's say, airflow, airflow dunks that built and automatically deploy the models on a, on a weekly, daily, some, some scheduling policy. And you, couldn't, you, couldn't, you can't really do that without some notion of a CI/CD system. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not sticking with the, you know, the exact uh, DevOps like CI/CD, but yeah, CI/CD is a concept. Mm -hmm. Something I, I still strongly believe in. I saw the benefits. Let's say. So, I guess there there are a few questions, but um, when you joined Wix, the, this did you join specifically to build out this team, or did you join as like an individual contributor and then the team was formed? No, I actually joined as a, as an individual contributor to the data engineering group. Um, and as that engineering group is part of the data engineering group, well, I saw, I saw, and, and my my boss at the time saw that 
uh, we're really having trouble scaling the ML. Okay, the data science team uh, lacked kind of the um, the skill set uh, to build these things to build these things themselves, and then we started the project. So it was much more of an initiative, of an individual initiative, let's say, than something bought. Okay, let's build an ML platform uh, the, because data scientists need to scale their models. It usually, doesn't go like this. Yeah. So did you did you need to do work to convince people uh, that it makes oh. sense? Like what tips do you have? If, if most most now, of my work. Well, <laughs> no, not not most of my work, but yeah. But but I mean, if someone is now like an, a data engineer in in a company, obviously there is a scale issue in, in the sense of um, if you're a really small startup, you, you and and there are like two data people, you probably don't need a, a MLOps team at that point. But maybe you need to start learning the MLOps basics. But if if someone here is listening is is a data engineer in a larger organization. Uh, again, what, what should they, they notice so that they need to start like raising the flag, like maybe what we need to solve these issues is an ML infrastructure team? And how do you recommend they convince the bosses? Um, okay, so I, I can say that in from my experience, one of the, the first troubles that we saw was scaling, right? It was really, uh, you know, taking the first model or the second model to production took a few months, but also taking the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh model to production took the same amount of time. Okay, the problems remain remain the same. Um, so this is kind of where we started seeing seeing a problem that that we need uh, the same amount of time for these uh, let's say repetitive uh, repetitive tasks. Um, this was this was one thing. Okay, that, that we noticed kind of the, the clear thing that we noticed. Um, another was uh, more related to the data pipeline, the data pipelines issue, more, more of the feature store. Uh, we really had troubles um, deploying models online. Okay, batch was kind of a, a lighter issue, but deploying models online, using them um, you know, as REST endpoints, for example, and modeling the same data pipelines that are used for training that we now needed to model them in production was a really big task. And that took a lot of, of the engineering effort. Okay, and really, and really coupled the engineering and data science team together because every change in the data pipeline, let's say feature, and okay, it's feature equals the data pipelines in that case. So every change um, in a feature that a scientist wanted to do required an integration effort. Okay, from from the data engineer, the machine learning engineer, doesn't really matter. And this was something that that really held us back because there was a certain amount of, of features that we, we could use. We, the scientists couldn't use 100, I don't know, hundreds of features in his model because no one could have extracted it uh, for him. Okay, so automation of these uh, automatic extractions of data pipelines, what, what is called today, you know, the training serving queue, how do I use the same data? Am I trained, in, in, uh, trained on? How do I use it? How do I get it in production? This is also, you know, this is why we build the feature store, which is a really big part of the MLOps platform. Kind of the, the hardest part, I would say. So maybe to share a personal story, the first time I, I saw you, we there was a meetup at uh, at Wix in the, the Tel Aviv uh, harbor, um, um, and I, I don't. There was I think another talk from uh, Databricks uh, before or after you were speaking. Uh, but I remember like listening to you explain about the the uh, sort of uh, architecture of the platform that you built, 
Um, and this was like the early, for us, it was the early days of DAGZUB. It was me and my co-founder Guy. We, we went to a bunch of meetups to, to mingle with the community in Israel. And I remember like finishing the talk, we went up to ask you a few questions about what you built. But afterwards we were speaking like, man, they built so many things. It, it sounds super impressive. I wonder how, like, like how it actually feels to work with that in, in sort of in reality. Um, so first I'll ask, what part of the platform that you built are you most proud of? Um, so again, I think the two parts, kind of the, the CI, CD pipelines, I think um, at the end of the time, we really, we really nailed it. Um, and I think the evidence was, was kind of the amount of, of models that we had. And we started off with five models, six, seven models in production at, at Twix. And after a year or something like that, we had something around 300. So because it was that easy. Okay? And, and, and I remember asking, where, where were all that models? Okay, what did you do? <laughs> and so because it was really easy to model, to, to have you know, another model and another model, another model, just another API, it was just another um, endpoint. So I was really proud of that and, and the feature store. I think it was a very um, engineering wise, it kind of the, the hardest task, uh, the hardest piece to, mod, uh, to model, right? And we really had almost zero references for something, um, you know, a feature store. Uh, we read bits of, of, uh, of articles here and there, but it was something that uh, was really, uh, yeah, was really hard to build, really hard to get uh, to get right. Interesting. So specifically, I this training serving skew uh, again, specifically generating the automatic data pipelines between training and serving. This was yes, this was uh, fifty percent of what we did at the at the ML platform. Yeah, so I guess the the first way, the takeaway from that is like one metric if you're the ML infrastructure team is you want to show growth in the amount of models in production. Like if you can show that, then you proved your worth. Uh, yeah, it's it's a tricky metric because you know, you, you know me measuring infrastructure is always a bit tricky. You know, measuring infrastructure that is used for anyone else because what what exactly do you measure? You measure again amount of models. This is something that. that uh, I, I really thought about how do I measure the success of, of my team? How do you measure the success of an ML infrastructure team? The amount of models, the amount of, of I, I don't know, the amount of predictions. You know, th these numbers are not actually you know up to me um, in, in a way, let, let's say. Uh, but again, I think the, the amount of models and the simplicity and and we, we actually defined it at the end of the day as time. We wanted to to kind of uh, have a data scientist build, deploy, and have eyes on the model in, in something like an hour, okay? Instead of a few months that we saw right now, we wanted to have that up until an hour, but it was really hard to measure it directly. But I think, I think at the end of the day, we kind of, it was a successful project, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. There's metrics, uh, um, metrics are always problematic because you don't know if people don't start optimizing for the wrong thing once you once you set the, uh, the metric. I think it's Graham's principle. I, uh, guy is better than this uh, this than I am, but uh, um, but yeah, but I mean, in, in a sense, if there's a real need within the organization to productionize models, and then you made it easier, then you would expect growth in the amount of models in production. So that makes sense. And then maybe the other the other buzzword that uh, that has been said here a bunch of times is is feature stories. So uh, I I know that what you did is really impressive, but obviously today in the market. This word is is thrown around a lot. 
So first, maybe can you define what a feature story is in, in your opinion? Uh, and then maybe yes. we'll dive into it a bit more. Mm -hmm. So I, I can define, I can easily define what I wanted the feature store to be. Okay, when we first started uh, building that. Um, so first of all, we wanted to have um, kind of a, a single curated and, and some sort of, of discoverable source of truth for features. We imagined it as, as a data catalog for features and uh, because the, the problem we set out initially to solve was the problem of uh, data set reproducibility, let's say, because we, we had a problem, let's say, uh, one, of the, one of our models that we, that we constantly worked on is that in every iteration of the model, every now and then a new data scientist came and started uh, working with this, uh, with this you know, very important uh, model for, uh, for Wix, and it kind of, he started from scratch. He went through all lines of, of SQL that model features, and in some cases, the tables that he read from were there. In some cases, they were changed completely. In other cases, he didn't, uh, he didn't understand how to reproduce the data sets. Um, so the, kind of the feature engineering part or the feature extraction part for training, just for training, uh, let's say, was something that we, we wanted uh, to solve. So this is what we started with, kind of a data catalog for feature. This is how you model, uh, this is how you now model, uh, model a feature. This is how the feature is interacting with our data lake. Okay, really uh, a structure, structure for, uh, for a given uh, feature. Um, so this is kind of the first thing that we wanted, uh, we wanted to solve. And this, is, and this made sharing features between projects much more easier because one data scientist defined a feature for his model. Let's say in Wix's example, how many times did the user pub, uh, clicked publish on his site in the last, I don't know, X days, seven days, something, something like that. So this feature was, was reused in, in another model. Let's say the shell model and the premium uh, model. Johnson, this is kind of the, Wix is a freemium based uh, company. So we have churn, we have uh, premium subscribers and it's kind of uh, um, a lot of the models that are used for this model are, um, for the churn model are also good for the premium model, for example. Um, so this was the first thing we set out to solve, the single discoverable source of truth. And the second was this training serving skew. How do you, um, how do you make these features that data scientists uh, trained his model his model on how do you make them accessible in uh, in production okay, so this is what uh, this is what i wanted the feature store to solve okay so i i tend to agree with that terminology i feel like usually when you now look at the solutions for for um like uh feature stores that you can buy uh usually they do a better a better job at solving the first part uh and then most of them sort of don't really live up to the second standard which i think it, I, I mean it's it's uh sort of objectively harder to do um and i and yeah so so from, first from it's, experience it, yeah it's a, first it's impressive that you succeeded in doing that i guess the everyone uh usually refers to like uh, the uber platform right like michelangelo that's the, the the reference that people usually use but that's obviously not uh open source at least not as, as far as i uh, as i know um and and so one question that i i have about this is doesn't this require like what part of this of six of the success of this part of the second the second feature so again the training serving skew is solved by um workflow so you need to convince the data scientists to work in a in a certain way in order to 
get this results? And how, how did you manage that within the organization? Like, I don't know how many data scientists Wix has, but I'm guessing it's more than a few. Um, yeah, yeah, more, more than a few. Um, so how do, how do I convince the data scientists to use the features though? This is what you're, uh, you're asking. Yeah, I mean, or maybe how, how do you make it so easy that it's not a hard choice for them to do? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was mostly the second part that was, uh, that was attractive, let's say, for data scientists. Because, because when a data scientist wanted to deploy his model into production, okay, we, had, uh, we had a system of the, the feature store was actually really integrated into the ML platform. So when a data scientist built his feature and then kind of declared it in the schema of his model, then the platform would auto extract it, uh, auto -extract it for him. And, and then he was kind of um, decoupled from the engineer. So we didn't really have to talk to, with anyone to, uh, to deploy his model. He didn't have to talk with anyone um, you, you know, to get the features for him. So this is what was really valuable. Okay, this was kind of one of the main reasons they started using that because, the, because kind of the, the organization saying the organizational um, perspective was listen, we're not going to extract any more features for you. You have a, a clear way of how to do that. You want me, uh, uh, you want to deploy models into production. You want to use hundred, hundred, you know, hundreds of features in your model. So this is the way the feature store is going to solve is going to solve the, that case. Otherwise, you're going to start, you know, to get stuck in integration. You're going to have, need to have favors. To ask people for favors that extract the features for you, and the feature store really solved that. So this is what was you know a sweet spot. You want you want more features in your model. You want to use clever. Uh, you want to iterate faster. You want to be more independent. This is the way to to do that. And and your requirement from them was just to sort of uh, fulfill a contract, like build out the feature as an interface. Mm -hmm. Build out yes, build out the features as you know, use the SDK that, that I gave them. Now, it, it wasn't really easy, okay? Not everything can, was modeled, uh, could have been modeled using the DSL. So a lot of the ping pong was, okay, I need these specific set of features or I need uh, these, uh, these aggregations. So a lot, a lot of what we do is, is, okay, how do we support these, uh, we call them feature families. How do we support feature families that are based on the site content, the content of the Wix site itself? How do we how do we base features on data that we saved in Snowflake? Um, and we always wanted to to offer an infrastructure for that. We didn't really want to pull this specific feature or that specific feature. We always as an infrastructure team. Again, this is what I considered myself or considered my team as an infrastructure team. We wanted to solve the general problem. How do I model features from Snowflake? How do I model features from that source, from that or or, or other source? So, so once the initial platform was built, most of the work was sort of uh, building connectors for more data types and, and things like that. Yeah, building that's... connectors for more data types. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of time we spent on performance, on the performance of the feature store. Um, again, I'm not sure how you know, how technical do uh, you want me to get, but the way that we uh, that we built the feature store was that a feature was not actually materialized. And this is something I, I see in feature stores in feature stores today. We had at Wix 5,000 features, okay? But there was no, there wasn't 5,000 ETLs computing these features, uh, features all the time. So feature, feature was, was only, uh, only a concept or only a, a metadata once, uh, once it was created. And we only manifested it and we only um, yeah, made it materialized once a data scientist requested to generate a training data set. 
So basically a feature was just, let, let's say in, in, off, in the offline world, in the training world was just a Spark SQL. So a feature translated into Spark SQL that we invoked on the data lake once the data scientist requested to generate a, a data set. Um, but again, because features were not pre-computed, so the, the trade-off was time. Okay, if, if nothing is pre-computed, if everything needs to be uh, computed, uh, you know, computed on the fly, on Wix data lake scale, so this was uh, this was a big issue. So every training data set, we invoked a really a big Spark cluster, and, and a lot of what we did was a performance optimization. What is the the sizes of the the Spark cluster? What is the compute power needed uh, to generate the training sets in uh, uh, you know in viable, in, you know, meaningful times? That sort of that sort of things. But, but does that doesn't that uh, also uh, risk losing reproducibility if you're if you are like you you need to ensure that the underlying data isn't changing right so did you underlying work on data, that yeah yeah underlying data doesn't change so this is kind of a, of a guarantee of how the data lake at Wix is modeled okay the data lake at Wix is very very organized we have a you know specific catalog of how that is inserted, so no one is in, no one is changing that. It's, it's immutable. It's append only and immutable. Interesting. So, so, so there yeah. Is, so the, yeah. the ML platform was built on top of the data platform. Um, so we, we had a lot of the data um, infrastructure, the data tools that, that we used at our disposal, and we really built the ML platform on top of the data platform. It was really mature at that point. Yeah, interesting. So these these are all good tips. Sort of if you're if someone is thinking about building their own uh, their own equivalent uh, solution, uh, I guess data data is first. Yeah, data is definitely first. <laughs> you need to solve for data, and then you can solve for machine learning. The do, do you think that there's um uh you know you're like you built this very sophisticated system. Um, and and I think you gave us a few example of the examples of the metrics that that proved that it was useful to the organization. Uh, is there is there some uh, criteria you'd say for someone who 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 sh who's listening that they shouldn't build such a thing? Specifically, the feature store seems very complex. So when do you think it's it's not necessary, or when is it too early to build out this thing? Mm -hmm. Um. I think it's too early to try to build yourself, okay, an ML platform. Um, if you only have one, two, or three models, or these models are something that you need uh, to really uh, tweak, kind of to build the entire business on. Um, so it's it was a generic platform, okay, and it, it has drawbacks building such a such a generic platform. Again, we had to, to work hard to add connectors, to add the frameworks that we support. Well, uh, all of these things. So having a generic platform for all the models in, organ in the organization has a drawbacks, uh, of course. So if you need, you know, a very few models or something very, very specific, you want to build, I don't know, an entire uh, recommendation system and, you know, from scratch and you need it with specific, very, very specific requirements, then I'm not sure building an MLOps platform and then uh, writing your very complex, uh, I, I wouldn't say model, but you know, ML system on top of that is, is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, and uh, one of the things is uh, like for for me personally, for I guess for us at Dagzub as well, the 
um, open source is sort of a very uh, close topic to heart. And obviously, um, like in, in machine learning, everyone is using probably one of the, you know, TensorFlow, PyTorch, or sklearn, which are all uh, open source packages. Um, but even when you go into the realm of ML tools and ML platforms, you have open source uh, solutions. So I'm curious to hear, like, within the platform that you built, what parts did you decide not to build? Did you use open source solutions to sort of fill in the, the patches? And, and how did you choose the, the tools that you used? Mm -hmm. um, so the two main tools that we used, and again, it's a bit of a tricky question because that, that was three and a half years ago, something around that. So the, the ML tooling community or the ML tooling uh, uh, the, the ML tools that are available today weren't really available uh, back in the day. And I think I was the first user, at least in, in Israel, first user of MLflow. Um, uh, this is kind of the, the early days of I wanted to build the platform. Then I saw, um, uh, I came to London, I went to the Databricks uh, convention and I saw MLflow and this, uh, I said, okay, this is kind of, this is how I'm going to solve the sterilization issue. This is how I'm going to solve the experiment management. This is how I'm going to uh, build basically you know, build a CI system uh, on top of. Uh, this was, I think, uh, you know, a naive idea at the time, but it worked, uh, let's say. It, it required a few uh, a few iterations, but eventually um, it worked. So why was it naive? Because it was really, really, uh, you know, again, I think I, I was the first one to use, uh, kind of one of the first to use MFLOW in production. Um, I, I would dare say that, and it was really immature. Again, and we, we had to customize the, the hell out of, uh, of MLflow, basically. Um, so maybe using using that uh, project, you know, for, for for what we saw as an MLOps platform for Wix um, at the day. I, I don't know, you know. It was a leap of faith. Retrospect everything. Yeah, it was a leap of faith, and eventually paid off, I, I think. But again, the, the road wasn't uh, the road wasn't easy. Um, so we used MLflow for experiment tracking. We used it to build the CI system on top of, and we used SageMaker as a hosting as a hosting mechanism. And this was yeah, two of the main tools that, that we used. And Spark, Spark is, is the um, Spark is the offline feature store. Okay, or the offline feature store engine um, based on on our data lake on Parquets on S3. And for the online uh, feature store, it was uh, Redis. Redis, okay. So a few so open this source. is kind of the, the main yeah no, a, a lot of open source yeah um interesting so you but but yeah sorry continuing that that, that question so it, stitching together these open sources and that kind of maybe leads me to to why quack or why i left to to build uh, to build quack stitching these open sources uh, together kind of building an mlops platform on top of, of these uh, and other tools was a really big task, okay? And it required, um, it required a lot of resources. It required kind of a full team of six, seven, eight people, depending on how you, uh, on, on which, uh, which period of time. So building a team of eight people to, uh, to build an MLOps platform for your organization is, is something that, you know, Wix uh, started uh, having these problems early. So we kind of had to build it, but I, I don't think that's, uh, um, I don't think that should be the uh, the way to go today, to build your own MLOps platform so from scratch. Um, that's that's a big thing to do, if that's not your main business. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a fair statement, and I, I think that uh, patching together, uh, you know, the disparate parts and making sort of there's a lot of uh, knowledge to inject into that patching together because things need to not just work on the same I don't know Kubernetes cluster or whatever you're running it on. It actually needs to have a, a logical interface so people can transition between those stages of the process yeah. uh, logically. Um, yeah. But I guess this, this is this, the main point, actually. That what yeah. you just said. This is the main uh, the main issue. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, I guess this is a good uh, segue. So what? So maybe can you share a bit of uh, what you're working on at the moment? I'm mm -hmm. um, sure. So so um, I'm at Quark. I'm the VP Engineering and one of the co-founders uh, of Quark. And what we're building is basically an end-to-end -end MLOps uh, MLOps platform, and similar to what I had to build at Wix, uh, to what uh, our CTO Yuval that saw it from SageMaker's side. Or, or alone, our CEO that came from a Pioneer was the VP data of Pioneer. All of us had to kind of reinvent the wheel um, in different places. And I think it shouldn't be the case anymore. Okay, I think, uh, um, you know, in this, in this time, building an MLOps platform for your organization is something uh, that we want to help companies uh, do. Okay, interesting. So when you say end-to-end, um, like where where do you draw the lines? Like, do you? Ah, good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so when I say uh, when I say end to end, the the lines that I think, or at least let's say our areas of focus right now um, are the CI/CD part. Okay, how do you build more models faster and deploy them into production? That's kind of the the mission statement as I see it for the the CI/CD. Um, and the feature store, which I think is, is really an integral part of, of what an MLOps platform uh, should include. Because uh, it, it is the hardest part of building an MLOps platform, especially in online models, in real-time models. And I think the trend is going there, building more and more real-time and, uh, and models. So I think a feature store, specifically a training serving SKU, um, is something that an MLOps platform uh, must have. Okay. We have we have two notions in, in Quark. So we have two first class citizens. One is, is a feature and second is a model. Okay, and it's a it's a many to many. The idea is that you can see the, in the model which features are being uh, uh, which features is the model using, and same for a feature. Okay, uh, this feature is being used in, in which models. Having a feature store alone doesn't uh, doesn't allow you this level of uh, um, this level of, of discoverability or this level of, of integration. I can say in, in Wix, when, when a data scientist needed to build uh, needed to build a new model, so the first thing he, he, he did, and I, I know that from, uh, from experience, was going to the feature store and seeing what other models or models that he think is similar, what features are they using? And then he kind of built the first version of his model. Oh, so this sounds like an interesting feature because this and that model are using that. This sounds like a very interesting feature. So he had a very rich ecosystem of features. He just had to, uh, you know, to pick uh, to pick and choose which features are you going to use this model, generate a training set, and and see and see how it goes. Yeah, uh, that's that's. Um, I mean, that's super interesting, and also I think I'm guessing like what you're talking about is uh, very oriented towards tabular data, right? Because then people are looking at the model and and sort of choosing the, the feature calculations that they need, and then it's being pulled into the model. So, so this is something that we're uh, uh, thinking a lot about the DAGs of as well, but in the more in the realm of unstructured data um, and how, how do you do that? Um, 
But, Actually, a feature uh, store for unstructured data is also an interesting concept. Yeah, uh, feature yeah. store, you know, em embedding feature store or feature store for yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's it's definitely something that's uh, it's earlier, let's say, in in the life cycle of uh, of unstructured uh, feature stores. But it's something that we're um, we're we're thinking about, and and really, how do you like what does it mean to do all of this work? Of I have this model, I want to be inspired by it understand what the smart people that came before me did to create it and then hopefully improve it because you know you all everyone has something to contribute and maybe you're looking at the problem from a different perspective but you have to have that context so i definitely understand what you're talking about um one one sort of trade-off that we've seen come up a bunch of times and i'd like to hear your perspective on is like end-to-end -end versus i don't know you would call this uh, integrated or something like that so so you said that your choice was to go after sort of an end-to-end -end solution. How, how do you view this trade-off? Like what, when is this solution better? When is the other option the, the right one? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's a question of, again, best, um, yeah, best of suite versus best, best in class, uh, let's say, for example. And when you're really trying to build an ML platform that you really ha have kind of, you're starting off with your ML journey, um, and you need to build now an ML platform, you need to build some parts of a feature store, you need to build some part of a deployment mechanism, some part of the workflow orchestration, trying to get all of these you know, components together um, and glue them is something that, that can be you know, very, hard to, very hard to do. Um, again, I know that because this, this is what I had, to, I had to do. So you need a team to build that, you need, you need personnel, you need people to uh, to glue that thing together into a platform that makes sense for, for the organization. Um, yeah, makes sense. So, okay, Ron, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure you. having thank you, you here. And uh, hopefully we can talk again in the future. Yeah, of course. It'd be great. Thank you, Dean. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening to the MLOps podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, Share it with a friend or add a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get this episode. Thank you and see you next time.